Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today we're talking about midges. More specifically, using midges as dry flies, simulating bugs that are on the top of the water or even in the surface film that are very, very small. If we're going to be taxonomically accurate, when we talk about midges, we'd be talking about bugs in the order Diptera. Now, this is actually bugs that kind of look like mosquitoes, little no kind of things. But fly fishers use a lot of flexibility when we talk about bugs. We kind of try to lump things into mayflies, caddisflies, and stoneflies, and other. And midges can be mayflies. They probably actually can be caddisflies as well. But more often than not, they fall into other. They're very small insects. There's actually some terrestrials, too, that are teeny, teeny, tiny, and uh, you can use midge patterns to replicate them. All that to say, midge fishing is incredibly productive because for as much of the macroinvertebrate volume that you see with the naked eye, there's that much more that is very, very small, microscopic, or detectable once it's up against something like your hand or a white background, but we don't see it easily, especially while it's in the water or while it's flying around in the air but trout are able to see these things. Other sport fish are able to see them as well, but trout are in particular keying in on these foodstuffs. And this is a benefit to anglers because this gives us another option. Once we can identify the kind of bugs that are in the water, the kind of bugs that are on the surface of the water, and the kind of bugs that are fish are eating. Because if you enjoy using dry flies, if you can fish very small, 22, 24, 26, 28, and maybe even smaller flies, you can extend your dry fly fishing, not just into the colder months, but in the in-between times between hatches, because there's almost always midges coming off, or there's fish that are keying in on those midges that are present. And there's particular spots in the river that there may be an accumulation of midges, slower water, kind of in eddies, things like that. But this is an enormous topic. I mean, I've even narrowed down the idea of midges in general to midges on the surface and the surface film in particular. And really, to be honest, I'm going to focus almost exclusively on midges on the top. And the reason for that is this is being recorded in February, and this is probably your best bet at dry fly action in the winter. As I was saying earlier, you can fish midges throughout the year. I mean, trico falls are just some of the most fun and frustrating fishing that you can have. 
But in the wintertime, across the country, tailwaters, spring creeks, freestone, you're going to be able to fish midges as long as you have open water. So that's what we're going to look at today. The first thing I want to touch on briefly is the rod to use because if you go out there with a really, really fast rod, a really stiff rod, or a particularly heavy rod, you're not going to have a whole lot of fun casting, presenting, and setting the hook on these flies. I prefer, personally, a medium fast to medium action rod. I don't think a very slow rod is the best for fishing a midge, although I do fish with fiberglass and bamboo with midges, and it's not an inconvenience. But I like a light and responsive rod where you are able to control your cast and we'll talk about the cast in a little bit so something where you are able to make responsive changes and maybe even make some specialized casts which again i'll touch on in a bit where you're not going to be able to do that as much with a slower rod and a faster rod you're not going to have this sort of finesse now your casting stroke is going to dictate the rod that you prefer, and your casting stroke is going to dictate what rod is most responsive to the way that you cast. But I would say generally, for the bell curve of casters out there, a medium-fast rod is probably what you want. Additionally, I like midge fishing with three, four, five weights. You can certainly go smaller with two, with a one, with a zero. That rod, and I fish those rods a lot, they're just going to limit the kind of fishing that you're able to do. So if you are sold out on fishing the midge or even sold out on fishing small dry flies, nothing wrong with fishing a two weight. Once you get to a six and higher, then you start to have some issues. Now, that being said, if you're on a tailwater and you have a six weight because you've been throwing maybe a smaller streamer or some bigger chunkier nymphs or dry flies and you have fish that are feeding, as long as your rod is of a softer flex and you're able to cast with that finesse and it's going to protect your tippet, then by all means, you throw a, a, a midge with a, a six weight. Now, line. Line is the sad undersung hero of fly fishing and i've talked about this kind of ad nauseum in the past so i don't want to harp on this too much but if you have the wrong tapered line if you are overlining your rod for example then that line is going to have the propensity to come down harder now can you adjust your casting stroke absolutely i like a line that is true to line weight and with a traditional taper not a super aggressive taper, something that's built for heavier, larger flies. Leader and tippet, long and light. If you hate using 6X, if you hate even using potentially 7X, then that's going to be a problem. The reason being has nothing to do with trying to show off with how light of a line you can use, but once you get down to these very small hook sizes, the eye of the hook, unless you're buying or tying with a specialized hook that has a larger eye, you're not going to be able to get the 5X or the 4X into the eye of the hook. But more importantly than that, I guess that's the most important thing. If you can't get the line in the hook, then you're not going to be able to fish it. But I would say more integral to fishing, you don't want a big bulky knot on the head of that fly. A 4X knot, an improved clinch knot where you have six wraps or whatever, might be a quarter of the size of a size 26 or 28 fly. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's a big knot for a small fly. So you get down to that 6X or that 7X and between fitting through the eye of the hook, between the knot size, but then also you don't want a whole lot of drag. And even if it's not dragging, you don't want that rigidness of 5X. If you can believe it, the rigidness of 5X 
to influence how that fly is floating. Or I would even say that if you're fishing a fly with hackle, and we'll get to a few fly patterns here in a second, but a fly that has a lot of hackle on it, so like a Griffith's gnat or even just a traditional midge pattern that's a dry fly, you want that hackle to stand on the water and not to be pulled down because that heavy tippet is pulling it down. That sounds extreme, but you see it happen, and maybe the fish don't care, but if I'm going to go through the effort of getting this all set up and making a good presentation and getting into the right spot and targeting these fish, then I want to improve my chances ever so slightly. And so if that means going down to a little bit smaller tippet, then I think it is more than worth it. And these tippets are super strong. They're able to withstand pretty good sized fish as long as your knots are strong. Your tippet is rarely going to snap just in the middle of a three foot or five foot run. It's going to be your knots. But if you tie good knots, then you're usually okay. And of course, that means making sure that you're not going from a super thick tippet to a super narrow tippet, that you're using good enough hooks so that there's no sharp edges on the eye of the hook, things like that. You can get away with using 6X and 7X. Now, as far as lengths, that's really going to be dictated by the water you're fishing. But a normal free zone stream where you have smooth water, I like a good 10 to 12 feet, kind of as my starting point. And I like a tapered leader. So I, I can start with a 9 foot 6x tapered leader and then maybe add another 4 feet of 6x to that. Or I can add 4 feet of 7x if needed. But that gives me a great starting point. I can break that down if I want to, get to a nice rigid butt section of a leader, and then go maybe two feet of 3x, three feet of 4x, and then three feet of 5x, and maybe four feet of 6x. So I think that takes me out to about 14 feet also. Now that's a long leader, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to eliminate the drag that is going to always happen no matter what kind of fly you're fishing, no matter what kind of dry fly you're fishing. But in this equation, your fly is going to have the least amount of resistance on the water. Your leader and your tippet is going to be what's pull pulled on the most by the current. Your fly is not going to be driving your rig down the river. It's going to be your leader and your tippet. That happens a lot normally, but when your fly is teeny tiny, you don't want that happening. So you can't eliminate it, but you want to limit it. So having that long, wispy, gossamer tippet length, you are allowing it to unroll and coil, and all of those microcurrents on the top of the surface of the water are able to move around, and it's not going to immediately whip your fly into a drag or pull it across the current or something that's unnatural. Because if fish feeding on midges are doing anything, it's looking for a very easy meal and paying attention to things that are drifting as dead as dead can be. Midges don't skitter like caddis do. I mean, I'm sure some of them do, but by and large, most of them are dead to rights because they've got these tiny little wings and they're stuck with all that surface tension of the water. And you see how difficult it is for a big size 10 or 12 bug to free itself from the surface tension of the water. Now think of that tiny, tiny little 26, 28 bug. It's not going anywhere. So when your fly spins or when your fly moves even a few inches and certainly a foot across the current in the, the water, that is a sure sign to that fish that something is rotten and they're not going to go for it. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. There's fish that are willing to chase a bug. But in my experience, having a dead drifting 
midge on the top is the way to go, and the best way to achieve that is a long, spindly tippet section on your leader. There's so much that can be said about that. There's, I mean, countless leader formulas, and I would say mess around with it. Based upon the flow of the river that you're fishing, based upon your approach angle, I will fish much longer leaders and tippets if I am approaching the fish from downstream, casting upstream, than if I'm casting across the river. And we'll touch on that in a moment. There's a lot of other equipment that you can use, and a lot of things that are very, very important, but I also like having a good fly box for my midges. I want them to be in compartments. I use fly wallets, and I use traditional boxes or silicone boxes for almost everything. I have compartment boxes for my midges because I put them in the right compartment as soon as I purchase them or as I tie them, and that way I can keep the 24s and the 26s and the 28s separate from one another without having to take them to some sort of hook gauge because even once they have the hackle on, they're kind of difficult to get properly gauged on a hook gauge to figure out where they go. So as much as I can, I try to keep them separated and segregated into their own little compartments based upon size. I don't care what color they are. I can see what color they are, but I want my 28s, 26s, 24s, 22s in the right spot. And obviously you can tell the difference between a 22 and 28, but a 26 and a 28, it's a much different story. And then there's an awesome box that I'm sure a lot of people sell them, but I know that Risenfly Fishing sells them, risenfly.com, but it is compartments on the bottom and then foam on the top. So that allows me once I fish that I snip it off and I put that in the foam opposite side of where those little compartments are and those compartments have rounded corners so you're not chasing a little 26 midge fly into a corner of a fly box you're able to slide it out so that's a kind of a best case scenario fly box I rarely put a midge on some sort of external drying apparatus I put them back in the box and I make sure the box is ventilated because there's no better way to lose a tiny, tiny little microscopic fly than to have it stuck into something on your person and then rub into it with your arm or to a tree. All right, that's a lot of information about the stuff, a whole lot of information about leaders. Real quick, talking about patterns. Three simple patterns. Now, there's countless midge patterns, and this is fun. You can kind of go crazy when if you tie, if if you're able to tie those small patterns. I know that's a eyesight issue, that's a dexterity issue, that's a skill issue. Even though they're very simple patterns, getting those thread wraps so that they're not too bulky and that they're consistent and making your even your whip finish at the end, making that clean becomes crucial on a size 24 fly in a way that it doesn't on a 14 or certainly not a 4. So there's no shame in buying midges. I buy them all the time. There's some that I tie. One that I can tie and feel like I can do a decent job of is the Griffith Snat. And all this is, I mean, there's different ways to do it, but it's palmered hackle grizzly hackle that matches the size of the hook. And this is a good starter fly for tying. Start with 20s. I mean, that's still a midge. That's a small fly. 18, 20, 22. You can buy little midge dry fly hackle packs and the corresponding light wire hooks find a thin thread that matches that hook size. It's something that's small. It's not going to get bulky as you make your wraps or you make your head. And then you just tie in at the back, palmer it forward, and tie it off beautiful. Griffith's gnat is nice because a very all-purpose midge. 
This is something you can lube up with a lot of floatant and it's going to simulate that dry fly or if it's one of the bigger ones, this is a good terrestrial pattern in my opinion. You can go after some of those really small beetles or even really small ants if you have the 1820s. Then you can not lube it up with floatant and go in the surface of the water, maybe just grease a couple of feet, maybe six to eight inches above your fly of your leader with floatant. And now you're fishing an emerger that is very spindly and those hackle fibers are going to stick together. So it's not going to look like a little burr or pine cone going on the surface of the water. It's going to sink down and kind of just look like a bug suspended in the surface film. Awesome pattern, easy pattern, a pattern worth trying to tie. A little bit more complicated, but a little bit more nuanced and finesse is the traditional midge pattern. So this looks like a normal dry fly. There's hackle, usually not wings, sometimes wings, body, which is usually just thread, not dubbing, and then a tail. Of course, there's a million permutations of this, but the common colors are cream and olive and gray and black also and white. I mean, there's there's any color you can tie in, but those are the ones I usually keep in my box. Cream or white olive or gray, and black. And then you can also do the I can see it midge or a parachute midge. And all this does is add a visible post and it either maintains that normal palmered hackle or it, you see it in that parachute style where it's done horizontally. And this adds a couple of benefits. One, it sinks it down in the surface film immediately. You're not having to wait for a few casts for that fly to kind of lose some of its buoyancy. It immediately, because the hackle is on the top of the fly rather than around the fly, it sinks down a little bit lower. And I think most of the fish that you're going to take dry fly fishing with a midge are going to be looking for flies that are sitting much more flush on the surface than riding on top of the surface. As always, there's exceptions, but having the I can see it pattern or the parachute pattern allows that plus it allows that visibility, which visibility is key because a lot of the fish are going to be cluster feeding. They're just going to be moving around in a slow current, sipping up everything they can, eating four or five flies at once in four or five, six gulps, and then sinking down for a few seconds and then coming back up and repeating that process. And so you want to know which one of the bugs that's on the water, or probably more accurately, which one of the rises that that trout is is engaging in is going after your fly. So you're not setting that hook and pulling your fly across the front of that fish and making that little plop sound and scaring him or her and putting it down. So third pattern, and this is where I'm probably moving a little further away than we need to for this episode, but I figured I'd mention anyway because you'd be remiss if you were not talking about surface feeding fish and you didn't include an emerger pattern. The first emerger pattern and the one that I probably use more than anything is a serendipity. And this uh, is got a little bit of elk uh, hair as a collar and as a very abrupt wing. It's a, it's a cut down wing. And so you're going to have a buoyant wing that suspends this fly in that surface film and then the thread and wire or tinsel wrap body is going to hang down in below. So this gives you a, another option where it's still a dry fly. It's still floating. It's up there. It's it's going to be something these fish look like they're rising to, but it's going to be even further down in that water column great three flies to start with. When you're watching fish rise to things you can't see, a 
good chance that the three types of flies, so I said the Griffith snat, which usually floats really high if you put some floating on it, the traditional midge or one of the parachute styles, where even if you put floating on it, it's going to ride pretty flush with that surface, and then an emerger like a serendipity, where if you were to put a little bit of floating on the leader, then the elk hair or whatever collar material you use for that is going to keep it sitting right at surface level. So many patterns up top and then as you go down below. And I mentioned earlier the feeding behavior of fish. How do you know that fish are feeding on midges? Well, the easiest way to key on that is that you don't see what they're eating. Could they be feeding on full-size bugs that are emergers that are just below the surface and because of our limitations of perception with our eyes, we can't see? Absolutely. But I think there's some pretty good indicators in their behavior. Fish that are cruising around left to right and not just rising in a consistent spot going after fish in a particular lane, I would say I'd put my money, I'd put my chips on them going after midges. Other behavior, you see fish in back eddies kind of doing the same thing, maybe making a lap and even keeping their mouth open going after multiple flies. If you can't see them, then there's a good chance these are going to be midges also. Another indicator would be if it is the winter time and you might see little bugs crawling around snow, crawling around rocks, and they're really teeny tiny, and you see fish that are rising intermittently, it's probably not going to be a full-size mayfly that they're feeding on that you're just not seeing. It's probably going to be one of these smaller bugs. There's so much more that can be said about that. And a lot of that is dependent upon your locality, the stream that you're fishing, its actual macroinvertebrate density and diversity, as well as other factors. I feel like as soon as that sun comes up, you're going to get some midge activity. Whether the fish key in on that or not is a totally different question. But that's a huge topic and something worth exploring, worth talking about, but I would encourage you to explore it based upon your watershed, your region, and some of those variables. The last thing I want to talk about is something that I wrote about this week, and, and I'll, I'll encourage you to go read it, but casting approach. I mentioned earlier that I like a shorter leader if I'm casting across the stream. So if I'm casting just upstream of a 90 degree angle of the stream bank and letting it drift back down, I feel I can get away with a 10 or a 12 foot leader in those situations. I'll extend it up to a 15 foot leader or so or even longer if I'm casting from downstream upstream to a fish. Now I particularly like this for a few reasons. I feel like the fish are very wary if they are up and they are kind of cruising around because they are looking around. They're not just zoned in on one feeding lane. They're kind of taking in what's going on the periphery. And then once again, this is February, and so if I'm fishing in the winter, I think that the fish are a little bit more spooky because how stark our surroundings are. So they're seeing my rod, my line, my silhouette a lot more in the wintertime than they would when there's leaves on the trees and the, when there's streamside shrubbery. So I like to position myself downstream and then to the right of the fish. So say I'm 25 feet downstream of that fish, I will move off to the right five or six feet. So that fish is 25 feet upstream from me and six feet to my left. I will not cast directly at that fish. I will make my cast and I will hopefully be able to gauge how much line I need out so I'm not making a bunch of false casts. And I won't cast at a direct line from myself to that fish. 
I'll make a normal cast and then right before I make that presentation I will add a little bit extra thrust of application of power so I'm pulling my, my forward cast forward and I will push and I will not snap my wrist so much that that line shoots downward but because I'm right-handed as I come forward and I add a little bit more power on that cast before I stop and then bring my rod hand and my line and everything down that line should curve those four or five feet to the left so that my midge lands in that feeding lane. That's the ideal situation. And then my tippet and leader kind of curve off to the right and my line is in front of me. So I am not lining that fish. I'm not having my line go over the top of that fish. And that fly can be the only thing and that the few feet of that six or seven X leader is coming over the top of that fish, keeping it unbothered by everything I'm doing. That allows me to make multiple casts to this fish, which you're going to have to do because it might be slurping fly, 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 and then go still for a minute. But you don't know when it's going to start back up again, and you want to be able to have your fly over that fish and in its feeding area as much as possible. That's one of my preferred ways to do it. You should be able to, with practice, pretty easily learn how to do that where you over-apply power or you under-apply power so that as your line comes from your back cast into your forward cast, that loop either unrolls not enough and you're from if you're in my shoes, kind of goes off to the right and you're able to make a curve cast to the right, or you can apply more power and that loop over-unrolls and it shoots off to the left. Those are great for going around rocks, doing all sorts of fun little tricks on the river, but in this instance, I think it's really good for not putting your line or even your butt section or thicker part of your leader over a trout that is going to be very discerning. So lots of other great casting tactics and presentation approaches when it comes to midges, but that's one of my favorite ones because what that also does, in my opinion, is when I set that hook, that teeny tiny fly is not coming out of the fish's mouth sideways if I were casting across the stream, but it's coming back into the mouth of the fish. And I feel like that gives me a greater percentage of hookups than when I'm casting across the stream. That doesn't mean I won't take those opportunities and, and, and be deliberate about setting the hook, but if that fish is in front of me and I just do a normal trout set, then I'm pulling that hook anywhere on the side of that fish's head and uh, it gives me a better chance of, of hooking up. So much to be said about midges, and I imagine there'll be another podcast on midges in the future. There's a couple of articles on midge fishing and castingacross.com. There's a link to those on one of the posts this week. So enjoy it. Get out there. It's a challenge. It's fun, but there's always midges, so you can always catch fish on the surface if you have the right approach. This week on Casting Across, two articles as usual, and the first one was called... Coke machines and caddisflies. It's about a Coke machine that was a little bit of a spectacle in my town because there was always bugs on it. And you can tell when the bugs were going to be on the river because they'd be on the Coke machine first. You never saw a bug on the water before it was on the Coke machine. So a little bit of a story about that and some of the perspective that, that gave me. And then Wednesday was Winter Rises, Midges in the Cold, which is kind of the inspiration for this podcast. So I'd encourage you to check that out. This week's recommendation is a book. It's called Midge Magic by Don Holbrook and Ed Koch. I have all of Ed Koch's books about midges. 
he was a Cumberland Valley, Pennsylvania guy, and he literally wrote the book on fly fishing for midges. But this particular book has so much color, has anecdotes, it has techniques and tactics. It really goes into exploring subsurface midges in a way that is incredibly informative. And it does what I think any good book should do, which is it encourages you to go out and explore and figure this stuff out for yourself in a way that builds upon the education you get from this book. So Midge Magic, it is a inexpensive book you can get on Amazon. I'll put a link to the listing on the show notes to this podcast on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.